This recording has been produced by Christchurch Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Father, we ask you to pour out your spirit, bringing quiet to our hearts and our minds, that your spirit may fill our minds with your illuminating wisdom, strengthen our hearts to respond. All this, these things we know are possible for the one who redeemed us, and whose name we pray. Amen. It's a Hebrew phrase with a long history, tikkun olam, healing the world, tikkun olam. At the end of the first century, it was understood to mean a government that was properly just and made good laws for the well-being of its people. By the 18th century, adopted by the Kabbalist or mystical Jewish theologians of the Hasidic movement, it had become a collection of rituals that were designed to somehow heal the cosmos of its disorder. But in the latter 20th century and beginning of the 21st, it's a term that's been adopted by secular and non-Orthodox Jewish people in the West to mean social justice, the change of government, the correction of, of systems that are evil, and in the end as well, the healing of the environment through political action. This current pestilence in the world is indeed a good indication of sickness here. And though it appears neutral as to other things like earthquakes and hurricanes, some people are quick to criticize and say, well, it must be the fault of humans. for abusing the environment, for having wet markets. Others of a more religious bent will say it's God's judgment for personal sin or national sin. These explanations, and perhaps they are partly true sometimes, are not fully adequate, and often they don't stand up to a fact check. The traditional Good Friday scriptures, despite the sorrow and pain they describe, point directly to why healing eludes our world. If I were to condense those readings into a sentence, it would go like this. Healing the world cannot be accomplished without healing the human heart. Healing the world cannot be accomplished without healing the human heart. We'll turn to those scriptures that we just heard in a moment, but first we must dispel any doubt about their reality, their historicity. Because even for people who consider themselves to be believers, they're ancient, shrouded in the past, far away, not as real as an Instagram post or the most recent podcast. But real it was, and so we must anchor them in time and space. So just a football pitch over there is where, in fact, Jesus did stand before Pilate, down a couple of archaeological layers. And unencumbered by a cross 
just six to eight minutes walk that way. We take you to the place where now encased in stairs and stone is a hill named Golgotha. And just a further hundred yards from there stands a refurbished chapel that rises above the stones that were once the family tomb of the family of Joseph of Arimathea, where Jesus was laid. And almost all scholars, Gentile or Jewish, conservative or liberal, recognize those events as real and historic. They may differ about their meaning, but no one denies that Jesus, an itinerant rabbi in the first century, in Judah and in Galilee, was executed here by the Romans with the collusion of the Jewish leaders. And there's another factual point we shouldn't overlook. What to Christians down through this time has become a drama of cosmic proportions in its own time and to its own observers was a tawdry political maneuver masquerading as a spiritual conflict. Three forces combined to make it happen. The first, the chief priests and the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, those about whom we read. These were the power people, the ones the Apostle John calls the Jews. They were simultaneously priests and the financial elite. We sometimes forget that they bought their positions and used them to control the financial system of the temple for their own good, colluding with the Romans who, in order to keep the country quiet and producing tax revenues, kept them in power. And then secondly, there were the Pharisees. And to be fair, they really did have a religious and spiritual agenda. They disagreed with Jesus about the scriptures and about who God was and how he worked, and they saw him as a threat to their religious leadership. But actually, they did not control the outcome. They just contributed to it. And then there was Pilate and the Roman regime, which he represented. And he had really one concern, keeping his job. It was already on the line. Clearly unconvinced about Jesus' guilt, but in cowardice, he preferred to allow his execution rather than take a stand and do the right thing. This was indeed a dark, historic event, but its high drama is really not human. It's the fulfilling of a plan devised by God to heal his world. So, here and now, how are we to understand it? It would be wise to adopt a Jewish habit that's common at this season of Passover. We don't just do a service, but we actually step into the event, and we relive it. Not as an onlooker, 
or a professional <laughs> who's observing and writing, some religious commentator. No, we enter it as a participant. Every year we relive the shame, the tawdry circumstances, all the things that point to the sickness of a world that would do this to an innocent man. And we must decide, with whom do we stand in this moment? With those seeking political safety and, continu and continuing economic comfort? Or with the self-certain religious who agree with us? Or with the derisive crowd or the confused crowd? Or with the disappointed disciples? And secondly, if we do relive what happened this day 2,000 years ago, accepting that God's plans are sometimes wrapped in what appears to be a tawdry accident, times like this, just like a lot of other things in real life, then we will not give up following him because of the difficulty, just as his disappointed and discouraged disciples did not give up. But we'll wait for that time, whether it's a month or three days later, when the answer comes and hope is renewed, that echoes not just then, but now down through the ages. Understanding how that plan could unfold like it did will require us to go back a further six centuries to the prophet Isaiah, who told us about it and told us how it would happen and gave us its fullest meaning. We haven't time to explore the depths of those two chapters we heard read, but even two verses can tell us most of what we need to know. Again, chapters 53, verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Famous, familiar passages, and easy to understand, at least on the surface. But actually, looking deeper, this is what we find. He paid for our transgressions and our iniquities. And we should note there's not a third category. There's no iniquity that doesn't matter so much because it doesn't affect anybody else. There's no private sin. Transgression and iniquity in the prophet's mind aren't just fancy synonyms in a modern world for sin. 
sin that's just mine and doesn't hurt anybody else. Transgression affects everyone. Iniquity affects everyone. And the scriptures do not include the idea of an individual sin that matters to no one else but just me. That's a theological idea invented by a secular society that thinks either human beings are at the center of the world or perhaps at the center of the whole universe. To the prophet, transgression and iniquity were what made the world sick. And the text is clear, Jesus' suffering and the reassurance it offers was for the many, not just for the few. Isaiah was not writing to an individual or even a small group, but to a nation suffering under oppression. He has borne our grief. He was wounded for our transgressions. There's a lesson in that for me, for you, for us. It's not merely for us. The importance of Good Friday is that it's important for all people. It's important for the whole world. Isaiah makes a second point on the Lord's behalf that most of us would like to ignore. All we like sheep have gone astray, he wrote. Our family lived in England for 10 years in the countryside. We had neighbors who kept sheep. Sheep are not very bright. If the leader bolts because he's startled, they all follow. Sheep can't manage without a fence, and they can't manage without a shepherd. Even more, there's a pernicious idea about that most human beings can be good enough to build a just and good world. I had a friend in Pittsburgh, a Catholic with a devout mother who'd fallen away. He came to a medical crisis when an aneurysm almost killed him and he was barely saved by surgery. So that was the closest thing to a pastor he had. I went to visit. And after that kind of chit-chat that comes at the beginning of a sick visit, I said to him, Ronnie, have you thought about what your relationship with the Lord is like? He said, you know, I'm a pretty good guy compared to everybody else. I think he'll give me a pass. There's a similar view abroad in the world, but comes from a different theological perspective. It's a bedrock for Jewish theology that, yes, evil exists in the world, and people can do very evil things, but because they're created in the image of God, they're essentially good. And they have it totally within their power to act righteously, to do justly, and to bring goodness and healing to the world. I find it interesting. What a sharp contrast between that kind of thinking and the evidence around us. The nearly complete loss of confidence everywhere in our political leaders. Our fundamental distrust of the, of the institutions that are supposed to hold our societies together everywhere. 
an understanding that all business leaders must be corrupt and that, in fact, we can't even trust those leaders of faith because they fail and betray us. Oh, we can point to some anecdotes that are encouraging, some people who do selfless things, loving things, but the sickness of selfishness and its consequences surround us, a sickness that goes far beyond the coronavirus. Isaiah analyzed the cause with these words, Yes, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own selfish way. It is foolish to decry the evil behavior of environmental self-centeredness, of profit-taking, of misogyny, of the need for a just me, a just, a ju- a me too movement. For a century and a quarter of anti-Semitism and war and genocide in societies that span the globe. And one must take a look at one's sense, and someone must take leave of their senses if they think this is a world that by its own people can heal itself and be consistently good. Whatever theological or philosophical position you take, the empirical evidence points in only one direction, a deepening sickness, more transgression, and more iniquity. Isaiah points us to a person, a hero, in fact, a hero among heroes, whose behavior planned by God and lived out by his Messiah was the solution to the sickness. And that, as you knew it would, brings us back to tikkun olam, to healing the world, and to Good Friday. It brings us to the only place we can go, the foot of the cross, reliving what happened, and to having to decide. For some listening, It's a decision that you've never made. You've never decided anything about Jesus. For you, the first question is, can Jesus bear my transgressions? And only you know if it's the question you must ask. All of us here at Christ Church would be delighted to help you find the answer. You can write to us. There's a website at the bottom of your screen. Write and we'll answer, or we'll find someone near you who can help you find the answer. Or yours may be another decision. You're happy enough to let Jesus forgive you, but really, no thanks for more than that. You'd rather handle the rest on your own, as you always have. Let me assure you that it's not enough for your true healing, even your own, let alone the world. You will be among those who in fear and cowardice melted into the shadows when confronted with the cross. Your future will simply be pursuing the same self-indulgence and the same comfort, hoping others will bear the sickness and bring its healing, 
contributing little, if anything, to the healing of the world. In fact, it seems like most of Christendom is there right now. But you know, there's only one thing we can do. We have to return to the foot of the cross, return to Jesus in repentance, and as Isaiah once promised, again be healed by his suffering. For some of you, healing is well underway. You chose to trust Jesus, and now you're letting him bring about that change in you that's brought healing to who you are and healing to others, contributing overall to the healing of the world. You've joined with the Messiah in his work, already making the world around you a better place. Like we said, healing the world can only be done by healing the human heart. By a healed human heart, the world can be healed. So as we stand once more at the, on this dark hour of Good Friday, reliving its events, making our decisions, what will it be? Sickness or health? Repentance or self-serving? following the Messiah and bringing healing to the world, or slinking away into the shadows, and like a carrier of a virus, contributing to the infection abroad in the world. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus to bring healing to us. Grant us through him to do our part in bringing healing to those around us and healing to the world in which we live. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.